I believe what I believe based on a lot of evidence. Uh, I've you know read hundreds and hundreds of studies at this point. I've looked at a lot of data, and I think it's pretty clear when you look at the totality of evidence, we've got to do proportional representation. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Lee Drutman, is a political scientist and a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America, a think and action tank. He is the author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. He's also the co-host of the podcast Politics in Question, a lecture at the John Hopkins University Center for Advanced Governmental Studies, and writes regularly for 538. He's another in a series of advocates for structural reform of our electoral system. His organization, Fix Our House, is campaigning for proportional representation. You should listen. So, first my sponsor, then my interview with Lee Drutman at New America and Fix Our House. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Lee, uh, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Lee Drutman. I am a senior fellow at New America, author of the book Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party in Multi-Party Democracy in America. I'm also the co-founder of Fix Our House, fixourhouse.org, a campaign for proportional representation uh, in the United States and the co-host of the podcast Politics in Question. That's a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and a parent and a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. How many kids? Two. Two girls. Yeah, I have two girls myself, so that's nice. Um, where did you grow up yourself? I, I grew up uh, outside of New York City, uh, up in northern Westchester. I saw that you went to Brown. I did. I went to Brown. What did you study there? I studied English. Going out of fashion these days as, as a major. And well, I mean, learning to write and think and things like that, it's not so bad. Yeah, I thought so. And then I went and got my PhD in political science at Berkeley. Why did you switch over to political science? What was the motivation there? Well, I, I thought I wanted to be a writer, uh, which I guess I am now. But you know, I, I didn't know what to write about. So then I got interested in politics. 
you know, I mean, I was sort of always interested, but yeah, in my 20s, I started to develop much more of a sense of political consciousness and realized I had a lot of questions. So I went to grad school to figure them out. What had you done in between Brown and Berkeley? Oh, so when I graduated, I uh, worked as a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer and, uh, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I was, you know, very involved in the newspaper in college, and you know, then I spent some time as a reporter and realized it wasn't actually as glamorous and exciting and impactful as I had hoped it would be. And worked for a nonprofit in D.C. for a little bit, uh, and then went off to grad school. I, I spent a few years in a graduate program in political science myself at MIT, and did all but the dissertation. So I'm kind of a failed graduate student. What took you away from it? Uh, I came to DC and I started a software company, political campaign software, which did all right and took me down a wholly different road. I did learn a lot about, I don't know, what professional study of politics is like and how different it is from sort of the practice of politics. And I wondered what you took from that PhD. What, what did you learn there that you thought was valuable and what did you write your dissertation on? So I, I wrote my dissertation on corporate lobbying, and that turned into my book, The Business of America is Lobbying. What did I take from that PhD? I mean, I took a lot of things. One is, you know, I, I just really learned about political institutions and political systems and political behavior and political history. There was just a lot of, you know, a, a lot of books. And a kind of systematic, holistic way of, of thinking about things. I also developed my data analysis skills, and uh, that has, I think, been incredibly useful for me. A lot of people after a PhD go on to a full-time professorship or try to go down that track. What led you down a different one? I think I, I always was more interested in sort of, you know, trying to have an impact beyond myself. People in academia are, you know, I mean, they, they want to have an impact, but, you know, they're sort of more interested in the teaching and yeah, I like the teaching too, but the, and the research itself for the sake of the, of the research. Whereas I've always sort of, you know, my, concern with a kind of pure academic is that sometimes these questions are just, you know, academic questions. And although they're interesting and fun, sometimes they feel a little distant from the real world. So you know, I, I, I always kind of wanted to, to do something that was a little bit more applied. And, you know, at the time that I finished my PhD, I guess I started my PhD in 2004, finished it in 2010. Uh, you know, I think I think some of the gap between the academy and the real world has narrowed since that time. But I came to DC in 2000. Oh, I guess I had been DC before, so I came back to do research on my dissertation, and then I did a fellowship at Brookings. When I got a kind of taste of what think tank life was was like, and I really liked it. I did a fellowship on. Um, Capitol Hill, the American Political Science Association's Congressional Fellowship. I kind of just felt enmeshed in in DC and wanted to stay here and wanted to to do something which I felt like a lot of people weren't doing, which was to sort of be a be a bridge between 
know, people who are engaged in the sort of you know, work of political reform and journalism and people in the academy. I think I've mostly succeeded in that. I saw you spent some time at the Sunlight Foundation. What was that like for you? Well, you know, that was um, it was a, a fun place to be for a few years. I did a lot of analysis of lobbying and campaign finance data there and put together a number of reports. And it was a good, good space for me to be for a few years. At what point did the notion of this latest book, the Doom Loop book, proportional representation, ranked choice voting, all that, it seems like kind of a, a passion now or a real conviction or to be an advocate around that. It is a passion and a conviction at this point. I think, like a lot of people, the the rise and uh, election of Donald Trump in 2016 uh, came as a came as a shock uh, and a surprise and 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 a puzzle to to some extent. You know, there were you know, very few people who. You know, thought that Donald Trump would become president of the United States, even when he was leading in the polls uh, in January and February. And it, it seemed like there was a, this you know, question of like, well, how, how did we get to this moment in our politics uh, in which you know, we could elect somebody like Donald Trump president and that the Republican Party would continue to radicalize? So you know, in 2016, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about how had our parties organized and sorted uh, in a way that made this possible? What were the kind of trajectories of our parties and how had that happened? And it kind of seemed to me that that there was something about the, the way that we do elections in this country, uh, single member, winner take all system that had really accelerated uh this sorting, because once uh, politics began to nationalize, Democrats were really unable to compete in rural and small town America, and so just kind of gave up because there's no place where they could get 51%. Republicans, you know, sort of started losing out in professional class suburbs and urban America to the point where there's no chance they were going to get 51% as well in a lot of coastal states. And, you know, so it just, it kind of was this feature of American politics through which the, the parties really set off in their separate geographical uh, echo chambers. And then I started saying, all right, well, like, are there alternative ways to do this? Like most Americans, you know, I had a you know sense that there are other systems of elections, but as somebody who had, you know, mostly focused on U.S. politics, you know, I didn't really understand these other systems. So I, you know, did, did the comparative politics PhD that I never did when I was actually getting my PhD and read a ton of, ton of books on comparative electoral systems and you know, jumped out pretty clearly that anybody who studies comparative electoral systems thinks that our system is really dumb <laughs> in so many ways. And just these you know, modest proportional systems tend to, to do a lot better on a number of metrics. And you know, in particular, you know, they're better able to be responsive to extremist parties, I think. Whereas in the U.S. system, 
you know, the, the Republican Party was moderate until it wasn't. Uh, and once the Republican Party got taken over by its extremist faction, there was really nowhere else for the, the moderate governing wing of the party to go, especially in our you know, fully nationalized two-party system. Is there a moderate governing wing somewhere? Well, not, not anymore. I mean, there used to be. <laughs> yeah. There used yeah. to be. I am not a expert at all in comparative government. I also sort of miss that mostly, although I read, you know, read a thing or two. What is it that, that people who are expert in that see in other systems that is superior? I think that a, a lot of us here in this country on many uh, of our institutional fronts tend to have some chauvinism that's probably misplaced uh, towards our own system. But what's the like best evidence for other systems working better? I'll break this into kind of two two sides. One is you know the, the, the voter experience and and then two is the governing experience. So the uh, you know, voting experience in the US is you know you go to the polls and you know if you're lucky you live in a swing district, but chances are you live in a district or a state that's lopsided for one party or the other. So your vote doesn't even matter and you have only two choices anyway. Now in a proportional system, which you have multiple parties and proportional representation, your vote matters no matter where you live. You don't have to live in a swing district for your vote to matter. You can live in the city, you, you know, you can live in the suburbs, you can live in the countryside, and your vote matters the same. As a result, you're more likely to participate and vote because your vote matters. But you also get more choices. So you're more likely to feel that there's a party that actually represents you. Uh, and because your vote matters, the parties are also more likely to actually reach out and try to mobilize you. Whereas in the U.S., if your vote doesn't matter, the parties are not going to work to win your vote. You're not going to be mobilized. Now, as a result, voters tend to be happier, tend to feel better represented in proportional systems and tend to be better represented. So then there's then there's the election. Now. In a proportional system, you you vote for a party or you know candidate representing a party. Most parties are you know even even though the winning party is going to get like thirty or thirty five percent, nobody's trying to dominate the other party. So with multiple parties competing, there, there's no lesser of two evils demonization strategy. So, so there's some negative campaigning, but there's not the same. The other side is the enemy. The other side is a threat. Voters, as a result, don't feel, you know, quite this like all or nothing high stakes. The country, you know, is fate of the country hangs in the, in the balance of, you know, a few few thousand votes uh, kind of existential dread that we feel. In addition to that, voters are not uh, likely to be as, as geographically sorted because, you know, when you have five or six parties. Different parties are competing in different regions, so you don't have that sense of animosity and demonization towards opposing partisans, which makes people feel happier and better. And then, you know, if your party doesn't do as well, there's a chance that your party might still be in coalition with the other with the party that gets to form the coalition. You know, uh, 
But the, the distinction between winning and losing is not as stark. There, there have been no, numerous studies uh, of this. And in majoritarian winner-take-all systems, the, the losers feel a lot worse uh, than the losers in proportional systems. Now, the winners don't feel as, as triumphant either, but th- there's more of a sense that we're all going to work together. Then when it comes to governing, again, there's more compromise and coalition building because no one party is trying to be dominant. Whereas in the U.S., we have you know, the, the, the majority party, if it has a majority, is trying to impose a maximalist set of of policies on its side. And if it's in the opposition, it's trying to, to throw sand in the in the machinery. And there's a complex machinery. So there's a lot of opportunities to throw sand in it. And it, it winds up creating a sense of gridlock, dysfunction, demonization that just kind of makes everybody feel really crappy about how things are going. And to the extent that it leads to congressional dysfunction and moves uh, policymaking more to the executive branch, it winds up leading to these wild swings back and forth where uh, the administration changes party, then you know, end up with, well, we're going to reverse, you know, Trump's going to undo everything Obama does and make it worse. Well, Biden's going to redo everything Obama did and make it better, at least from my perspective. I remember hearing the claim that the two-party system and the way things were constituted actually provided a moderating force. I think the argument was something like by having only two parties, both parties would move to the middle, that you wouldn't have representation for the fringiest people. The crazies wouldn't have a place to go. They would have to pick one of the mainstream parties. And that when you looked at other countries around the world, that you would see a lot of difficulties with you know some party which was a fringe having being the pivot you know they had three to five percent uh, representation but they got to pick who would win and extract concessions and things like that what's your answer to that argument if there's something to it yeah well a bunch of things. One, you know, and I think there have probably been like very few examples of that, but those examples kind of tend to to, to loom much larger in in the imagination than, than the reality. But uh, I want to start with the kind of claim that the two party system is a moderating force, which I think had a lot of purchase in the kind of American political understanding for a long time. Now, of course, that hasn't been true for a very long time. Parties have been polarizing for you know, decades now. And and if the quote-unquote median voter theorem were correct, that, that shouldn't be happening. So we basically have you know 30 plus years of evidence contradicting a theory. So maybe it's the theory that's wrong, not the real world. Uh, so then the question is, what did people get wrong about that theory? What I I think it's important to understand is that although the parties were kind of moderate at the at the overall level, they were moderate because they were really these overlapping coalitions, right? That you had liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, along with liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. And so what you really had within the two-party system was a four-party system. And that's what gave the system its kind of broader stability. And Within that four-party system, 
what you had were multiple dimensions of conflict. So you had an economic dimension, you had a social dimension, you had a foreign policy dimension. And what that meant is that you could make different coalitions depending on different issues. So politics was multidimensional. And that meant that the that you didn't have this kind of pull to the extremes because the coalitions could constantly shift. But what's happened over the last several decades is we've lost that multidimensionality that was key to political stability. So what's happened is that all of the liberal Republicans and almost all the conservative Democrats have gone extinct, have vanished from the political scene. So everything is now flattened on a single partisan us versus them dimension. And when that happens, you wind up with the kind of extreme polarization uh, that's really, you know, uh, you know, a fundamental threat to the basic premise of democracy, which is that, you know, it's okay if our, if our side loses sometimes because democracy is a system in which parties lose elections. Because right? if Democrats lost, you know, liberals, there were still some liberal Republicans. Or if you're a conservative Democrat, there's still plenty of conservative Republicans. But now, if Republicans win, and I'm a Democrat, like, ain't nobody who is ever going to come close to representing my values when the Republicans have power. Uh, so that, that, that creates a, a much different dynamic around elections. I think there might have been people who would have argued that that was much healthier uh, situation with two parties, two parties representing different things, giving the electorate a real choice. A Democrat means a Democrat. You mean what we have now is, is, is it gives people a real choice? I think that some people would make the argument that they would rather choose between uh, a Democratic Party that represented them if they're a liberal or progressive than a Democratic Party that was internally conflicted. And that the other party, you know, like in my view right now, it's a disease, the Republican Party. And so it's it's a tough example. But it does seem to be that that a majority of Republicans are pretty happy with what they're doing, even if it's not based in the real world. Is that not a a, a reasonable choice for the country each time we have a big election? OK, I mean, so you, you can certainly make that argument. Um and, you know, that was an argument that, you know, famously was made by the 1950 American Political Science Association report on responsible parties. You know, and said, well, well, the voters' problem, problem with the system of 1940s and you know, 1950 was that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party were basically the same. So voters didn't have a meaningful choice. A lot of the folks who wrote that 1950 APSA report were uh, committed liberals, and they felt like there ought to be a real party for liberals, particularly they were frustrated with the, the lack of progress on racial justice issues. But the, the irony is, is that we actually got uh, tremendous progress on racial justice, the Voting Rights Acts of, of the 60s, without the parties being divergent and, and that it was the liberal faction across the parties that actually, I mean, liberals in the Republican Party, liberals in the Democrat Party, both supported those voting rights bills. We actually made tremendous progress on racial issues in a bipartisan way at the time. Now, in this moment, if you you know care about these issues, is that now Republicans see their future as fundamentally threatened 
by an expanding um, and diverse electorate. So what they're doing is they're making it harder for Democratic constituencies to vote. And that is a product of our zero-sum politics. I think on most racial issues, uh, on most economic issues, America is a center-left country. But because the Republican Party has been taken over by the extremists and they've created a binary choice in which, for whatever reason, a lot of folks don't see the Democratic Party as representing them or don't think of themselves as Democrats. And given the kind of nature of our thermostatic politics in which you know, now Republicans are more energized to vote, and also the fact that a lot of people are just kind of checked out of politics broadly because they feel like both of the parties, all they do is fight, a minority in this country is able to gain total power on a semi-regular basis and enact way outside of the mainstream policies. And I think that is a that is such a danger at the heart of how we do democracy uh, that it needs to be confronted and needs to be confronted immediately. And maybe 30, 40 years from now, we'll complain about this problem or that problem. But, you know, I want to fix the problem that's right in front of us. And I don't see any other solution to, to doing that. So tell me about this, the process for like putting together a book. What was the genesis of the idea? How'd you go about deciding what to write and, and what you put in? Okay. So the book writing process, uh, like I said, it was kind of a, an intellectual journey uh, in which I tried to understand the origins of our current political moment. And then I you know, tried to understand the, the, the alternatives. So it was, a, it was a very intense writing process in which I went through, you know, a lot of iterations. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the adage, you know, all, all good writing is rewriting. It must have been like 30 or 40 drafts of every chapter and, and all kinds of different schemes for how I was going to organize the book. I don't know <laughs> how exactly things wound up the way that they did. But I mean, the one thing I did is I, I got a lot of feedback. I, I, I shared different pieces with different people. I was constantly hoping that, that I'd get input from all, all types of people and talking about the ideas and writing about the individual pieces. I'm trying to also, you know, write it in a way that was accessible but rigorous I spend a lot of time trying to craft the prose in a way that that makes it a fun read. Some people might feel that it's it's too dense and it's too much information, but you know, I think you know, a lot of people have said, "Wow, that's a, that was actually a good read." In addition to to learning a lot, so you know, I worked hard on that, and you know, I tried to tried to balance a lot of things, and you know, I mean, it's it's a process. A, a lot of times, the. Uh it's the prescription part of a book like that that's the most challenge. Did you know what you were going to say going into writing the book? Did that develop over time? Like the reforms that you're proposing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's affectionately called the chapter ten problem, um, which is that you know you spend nine chapters describing a problem, and in chapter ten you say, all right, well now here's what I would do to fix it. And you know, most chapter tens are pretty bad because people don't go into writing a book with thinking about what's the solution. 
people, journalists, academics, uh, generally are much better at writing books that are focused on the problem, you know. And then there's another genre of books, which, you know, might be the, the reform-oriented books, where people start with their solution, and it's just not very convincing because people haven't really defined the problem very well. So it's not clear what problem they're trying to solve. So I, I tried to do much more of a balance you know, I mean, I came to the solution after thinking about the problem, but I knew what the solution was going to the writing process. So I was able to craft the book in a way that made the solution logically follow from the history and the, and the theory. So it didn't feel like this. Oh, and, and now, you know, you want to throw up your hands and say we should all have kumbaya and have a bunch of civic education and something like that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely went in trying to writing it with a clear reform in mind, but I also wanted to make sure that I clearly defined the problem in the process, which I feel like a lot of solution books don't do very well. We have a history in this country of electoral reform, but they don't generally come too easy. What do you think the conditions are that would have to, I don't know, create the political opportunity structure for actually making this happen? Well, I think it's important to, to, to kind of echo what you said about we do have a history of electoral reform. We've done a lot of electoral reforms in our history, so it is possible. But, you know, it's not something that happens easily. Usually takes a crisis and a deep sense of dissatisfaction. And, you know, and that's, you know, the, the challenge, right? Things have to things have to get bad before they can get better. Now, I, I do think we are really in a moment in which things are quite bad. And I think it's widely recognized that we are in a moment of, of crisis and nobody is defending the status quo. But the, the challenge is, you know, in building an electoral reform, you've got to do, you know, a few things simultaneously. One, you've got to clearly define the problem. I hope it's becoming clearer and clearer that the problem is the way our two-party system is operating right now and uh, the, the system of single-member winner-take-all elections. So I hope, I hope that problem is clear. And then you've got to agree on what the solution is. And I'm trying to work to build a consensus that proportional representation is the solution. Again, we started a new organization called Fix Our House, fixourhouse.org, which people can go to to sign up uh, for more information. I've been, you know, pleasantly surprised by how much interest and support there is from, you know, a really wide range of folks, you know, in, in including, uh, you know, even a number of folks who I might not have expected to be be supportive of this, who are inside the parties, who, who recognize this problem, uh, or close to leadership in the parties. So uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's a growing consensus. And, you know, then, then you've got to create the, the political opportunity structure and so that it, it seems like this is this is the right thing for for political actors to do who are risk averse. I think the opportunity is that we're in a we're in a kind of generational change moment in in the, the leadership um, in Congress in in the, the the parties. There's a generation of leaders who are in their 70s and 80s who are on their way out, and there's a new cohort and new generation of folks who are entering who I think could be really force and energy of change 
And you know, I think nobody in that generation is nostalgic for the past. And even the people who are nostalgic for the past, I think have finally come to realize that there's no bringing, bringing that past back. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not about, you know, getting people to go to dinner parties in Georgetown and, you know, get drunk together. And that will bring back the, the spirit of bipartisanship, like something fundamental has changed. And when you recognize that, uh, then you can build uh, a new consensus. And frankly, the old order is collapsing. I mean, we, we know that. And, you know, the folks on the, the MAGA right are actively destroying it. I mean, they, they are kicking in the barn and, and pouring gasoline on it and throwing matches on it. They're succeeding wildly at that. Now, you know, that, that creates an opportunity to build something new, but, you know, we, we've got to be smart about that. Tell me more about Fix Our House. Is there... Uh... A staff there is. Yeah, we're we're a small team right now. We've just launched recently. You know, we we hope to continue to to grow and you know continue to 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 expand the conversation. I've talked to Rob Ritchie at Fairvote. I've talked to uh, Saul and Aaron at Political Innovation, who work. That's the Catherine Gale Group. Um, I've talked to uh, Rank the Vote um, and a number of other people who are also in kind of an ecosystem that's pushing for versions of what you are. What is your sense of sort of the state of a social movement around this kind of reform at the moment? Well, I, I think the fact that so many of these, I mean, Rob, you know, Rob Ritchie, God bless him. <laughs> he was, <laughs> he's been going he was, for a while. He's been doing this and he's, he's such a leader in this, in this field and he's, you know, really been there for the long haul. Um, and finally, you know, it feels like there are a lot of other folks who are, are in this space now. Uh, so it's, you know, in the last few years, it's just the, the electoral reform, political reform space has you know, expanded tremendously after Trump got elected. And particularly after January 6th, people realize that there's no going back. The idea that we got to do something to fix the, the structure of our elections really resonated with a lot of folks. So you know, my view is that we've got to do something very transformational, which is why I think that proportional representation is so important. I like the ranked choice version of proportional representation, although I will admit that I'm more committed to the principle of proportionality than I am of the the, the use of ranking. But you know, I think that the real distinction is between proportionality and single member. If you're not dealing with the, the single winner election uh, problem, you're not really dealing with the problem. And you know, that, that's why I feel like proportional representation is really the only solution. I mean, uh, the, the, there's the single winner ranked choice voting, which you know is fine. It's probably better than straight plurality. But there's a lot of studies done on that. I, I've looked at them. I've collected them all. I've done an analysis of of everything we know, and yeah, it's pretty marginal. I mean, it's not the game changer. You know, the Alaska thing, the final final four RCV thing. It's pretty marginal. You know, I, I'm also very skeptical of, of open primaries, that there's not a lot of evidence that suggests that that's more moderating. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens with this special election. I think it's going to be chaotic and confusing. It makes me nervous when I hear you say those things because it seems like even among the reformers right now, there's such a disparity in views. And are we going to need a constitutional convention? A bunch of Drutman's 
to figure this out in a room and, and then make it happen. I'm all for experiments and I'm glad that people are out there doing these different things. You know, I think most of them are, are going to be at the margins and not transformative enough. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I mean, I, I was a tremendous enthusiast of, of ranked choice voting. And, you know, as I've seen it, uh, you know, develop over the last few years, I've, you know, become more supportive, but not. What has undermined your enthusiasm? Well, I mean, I, I think two things. One is that the problem has gotten much worse and faster. Um, so I feel like we need to accelerate the, the transformative change. And two is that the, the effects are much more muted and marginal than I had hoped as they've played out more and as I've seen the studies, at least with single winner right choice voting. I'm a data guy, you know, I, I, I You're look persuadable at by evidence. And I'm persuadable by evidence, right? I mean, if I see a lot of studies you know, or the world, you know, I'm, this is what I believe. And based on, a, I believe what I believe based on a lot of evidence. Uh, I've, you know, read hundreds and hundreds of studies at this point. I've looked at a lot of data. And I think it's pretty clear when you look at the totality of evidence, we've got to do proportional representation. How's the funding situation? My, my sense is that there's a lot more sort of donors interested in this kind of structural change? Is that something you're trying to hook onto with uh, Fix Our House? What, what are you seeing out there? I mean, you know, it, it still takes a fair amount of convincing, but uh, I'm feeling more and more optimistic that the resources will come around to this. I mean, everybody wants to win the next election, but that's part of the problem is that everybody just always wants to win the next election. Where do you locate the fiercest opposition to change. I mean, it seems to me like politicians elected in one method are not necessarily easy to persuade to do a wholesale change. But if this started to gain steam and people are really advocating for it more broadly, where do you think it would run up into trouble? When I started making this case a few years ago, you know, I, I got much more of a pushback saying, well, that, that's a pretty radical change. And don't, don't you think like things will go back to normal and, you know, like the system will hold and, you know, after Trump loses, you know, the Republican Party will snap back to normal. I said, no, I, I don't think that will happen. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, pe people wanted to believe that. And the only thing we can recreate bipartisanship, let's get people together and have, have, a, have a dinner and talk through the differences. No, I don't think that's going to be enough. Yeah. So, but now the opposition is, or the skepticism is more, well, like, how are we ever going to do that? People are now much more, okay, well, that's clearly what needs to happen. But like, that's such a big change that like, you know, why can't we try to try to do something that's a little bit more incremental to, to kind of get there and why should we support your efforts when they, they would be such a change and you know how are how's the democratic party going to support this and the republicans are clearly going to oppose it and all these incumbent members like all, all the people who are in power now are going to oppose it so I, I have a response to that one i think a lot of people who are currently in power will do just fine on, under a different system and a lot of people who are in power now you know will actually wind up doing a lot better under another system because they'll be able to d do the kinds of things that they wanted to be in politics to do, which is to make deals and, and do public policy. Uh, 
And, you know, frankly, when everybody hates the status quo and everybody's angry at the status quo and feels like it's broken, you know, once you explain this to people that there's a different way to do it, most people are like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. You know, and, you know, frankly, the, 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 the people who get it the most are the people who have spent the most time working in, in politics. I mean, there are a lot of former members and former staff who who, who are among the biggest enthusiasts because they understand how bad the problem is. So you, you've kind of put yourself in the position of advocate and public intellectual. Tell me the various ways that you're expressing that and how good a fit is that for you? It sounds like something that you're enjoying. You write for 538, you got books. Where do you go from here? How do you fit into this path? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. When I think about what I'm doing, you know, with, with my time and energy, I always think, where can I add unique value? Like, what are the things that, you know, I can do that, that contribute? I'm going to keep doing that. I think I'm a pretty decent writer, a pretty decent communicator. I'm going to try to keep doing that. And, you know, as you know, opportunities emerge as the world changes. I'll continue to try to, you know, update my my understanding of, of where I can contribute and, and what the best way forward is and, you know, try to keep doing that, I guess. That's all I can do. Do you have a next book that you're working on? I have about five or six ideas of books that I might like to write, but, you know, I've been seeing that the opportunity space on structural reform, proportional representation is really expanding. I'm sort of focused on launching a few efforts in the multi-party proportional space and seeing if I have some time to pursue some of these other ideas. And, you know, I mean, writing a book is such a big commitment that I really want to make sure that I'm going to be able to devote enough time and energy to it if I take it on and that I'm going to have something to say that is going to be of value, not just in the moment, but like three or four years from now when it may ultimately come out. When you look around at the space of people who are working on this kind of reform, whose work do you like? Who who else should people be reading or following or what organizations are important that haven't been mentioned? I think you've mentioned the important organizations. There are certainly a, a lot of scholars who are doing really great work on the crisis of American democracy. One author, or actually it's a set of co-authors who I think have written a really tremendous set of papers on what they call pernicious polarization are uh, Jennifer McCoy at at Georgia State and Murat Summer, who's a a Turkish political scientist. And I think, you know, they have a, they have a very comparative analysis and, you know, they've written a series, series of papers describing the, what, you know, the, the dangers of pernicious polarization, which is what we're going through. But, you know, they, they also see the same thing happening in Hungary and Turkey and Venezuela and, and other places. So find, finding those, uh, you know, comparisons, you know, uh, there's a, there's a new book coming out by uh, Liliana Mason and Nathan Calmo on political violence. That's going to be a very important book. There's a, uh, Really uh, important set of, of papers, special issue of the Proceedings of the National uh, Academy of Sciences on complexity and uh, 
partisan polarization that takes a kind of pairs together complexity scientists and uh, political scientists and does a complex systems analysis of, of where we are and the dangers. And that's, you know, really this point about multidimensionality that I, that I was making before gets a lot more rigor in those papers. And I mean, they basically all confirm the doom loop hypothesis that once things kind of start spiraling in a certain direction, it's very hard for them to self-correct. There's a new book by Sarah Goodman called uh, Citizenship in Hard Times that I think is, a, is an important contribution. If the big challenge has been sort of Trump and Trumpism and related matters, that kind of has got everybody alarmed about the state of the democracy. And if this kind of reform that you're proposing isn't likely in the short run, what other solutions do you see that can be employed before we end up with DeSantis or Trump in a couple of years with a Republican Congress? What else do you see as useful things to be doing alongside what you're doing? The Senate race that I'm watching with the most interest is is Utah. McMullen, uh, yeah. McMullen. Yeah. Uh, Evan McMullen is you know running as an independent in the Utah Senate race against Mike Lee. Uh, now Evans, you know, a, a you know moderate Republican. I mean, I probably disagree with him on on a, a number of issues, but you know, we we agree on the kind of central tenets of, of what it means to be a democracy. And what he's doing in Utah is he's going to get the Democrats to basically to not run a candidate. And if that happens, and you know, all the Democrats in Utah vote for him and some moderate Republicans vote for him, he can probably win uh, statewide. Now, that's interesting because that's a play that you can run in a bunch of places. There are a bunch of states and a lot of congressional districts where the Democratic brand is so below water that a Democrat will never win. But Democrats stand down and basically endorse a moderate Republican, a moderate, can't, you know, it could be independent, moderate, whatever, you know, you can suddenly have, you know, a number of people who will stand up for the basic principles of democracy. Now, you, you can think of this as kind of an informal fusion. Now, fusion is a something that has actually gotten my interest quite a bit. For those of you have listeners in New York, they will know fusion because you can in New York you could vote for Joe Biden on the Democratic Party line or the Working Families Party line. This is interesting because if you could had a moderate party uh, in this moment that could endorse moderate Democrats in close races, whatever that 10% of never Trump Republicans who don't like Democrats, don't like Republicans, don't like the idea of voting for a Democrat, but would vote for a Democratic candidate on the moderate party line because then they could say, well, you know, we elected you. That could be a little bit of a game changer, too. So, you know, I've become very enthusiastic about fusion balloting. I think I think that has tremendous progress. I mean, in some ways, it's the party, whereas ranked choice voting is a candidate reform to avoid spoilers. Fusion is a, is a party's reform. Uh, to avoid spoilers. But what I like about fusion in particular is that it encourages parties to form. Because one challenge, one of the things I've been disappointed with ranked choice voting is that you haven't really had that much emergence of, uh, I was hoping you'd have more emer emergence of third party candidates. But I mean, it makes sense because 
unless you have a chance of winning as a third party candidate, you know, it's, it's hard to attract people to run in a race where they're just going to not be a spoiler instead of being a spoiler. But with fusion, if you form a party, you can endorse one of the, you know, a Democrat or Republican candidate and then actually have a lot of power through that ballot line endorsement. Now, it, it will take some work to get that expanded. It's only in a few states right now, but I think there's tremendous value in that. And what that also does is, they said that we're trying to build a multi-party democracy. It it, it kind of creates a, an organizing space for for the factions within the parties to start to to form kind of proto parties that then can be more effective advocates for proportional representation. Uh, tell me about your podcast. So the podcast that I co-host is a podcast called Politics in Question. It is uh, co-hosted with Julia Azari who's a professor at Marquette University and also a fellow 538 contributor, uh, and James Walner, who's a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and our uh, resident conservative. We're all political scientists. And you know, every week we take a topic, you know, usually something in the news and put talk about a you know, talk about it from a political science institutional historical lens. Often we have guests. I think we have a pretty interesting conversation. I hope uh, our listeners would agree. And I think for for those who want to, you know, get a little bit little bit nerdier on the political sciency angle of of current events, this is your podcast. Is there a question I haven't asked you that I should have? Uh, nothing comes to mind. I think we covered a lot. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, thank you. Um, this was fun, and, uh, and thanks for having me on. That was Lee Drutman. Lee is at fixourhouse.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.